We're just over a week away from the first race of the 2020 F1 season. So myself and Gary Anderson are getting excited about the fact we'll actually have some racing to talk about. But before that, we're obviously going to get into a few more questions from Gary Anderson F1 show listeners and hopefully talk around some of the topics that will impact the coming season and also the wider world of F1. So I should say, uh, hello, Gary. Are you, uh, are you getting quite excited about some races happening? Yeah, it'd be nice to see some real action and just see where cars really are. I mean, we were, the last time we saw them, we were in the testing and pre-season testing in Barcelona. Um, That seems like a lifetime away. Um, And it'd be interesting to see what's what because, you know, the the lay of the land was there, that test, for sure. Um, And, you know, interesting thing is to see if it's changed or not, if anybody's done anything or all the updates that they had planned post the Barcelona test obviously it'll come on stream now as opposed to coming on stream Australia on those first four races, let's say, where they were planned for. So um, I don't think we'll be seeing the same cars as we did at um, in, in Barcelona in general. I think there'll be, there will be developments in them all. So it's like a whole new season starting. I think you could say Austria is the, the pre-season, pre-season test. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's a strange way to start the season, but it's uh, certainly going to be uh, an interesting one to follow. Obviously, we don't have an opening question as such this week because they're all uh, listener questions, but I-, I think there's only one topic we can really go in on. question from Gavin O'Leary uh, about Alex Zanardi. Of course, Alex Zanardi, terrible news of his accident last Friday in a, in a hand cycling race. The updates recently have been largely stable, but obviously still uh, still there's big concerns there. So we send all our best wishes to to Alex. And the question from Gavin O'Leary is, could you give us your thoughts on the time Alex Zanardi drove for you towards the end of 91? Of course, he did three races with, with Jordan at the end of 91, his, his first races in F1, in fact. Yeah, obviously I knew Alex pretty well from, from way back then. Um, the first thing I would like to say is, that, you know, it's interesting for me that people that were involved in motorsport, drivers as such, can go off after motorsport or because of his injuries, really, uh, to do something different and suffer injuries that are, you know, normal injuries for people like Michael Schumacher skiing, falling over, um, Alex Zanardi. Um, plenty of other racing drivers have gone off and done something after their racing career, one way or another, and hurt themselves or killed themselves. So, you know, that's normal life, to be honest. Alex is a racing driver. Is, is a different a different thing altogether. He was a, a lovely guy. Um, whenever he drove for us in 91, that was the start of his F1 career. Um, it was quite interesting because he, he didn't know how to go slow. That was one thing about Alex. He was always on it constantly, all the time. Every lap was just another Banzai lap, to be honest. And, you know, he was driving for his future as well because, you know, he didn't know where he was going after the little trip with us. Um we obviously had Bertram Gascio and Andrea de Cesars at the beginning of the year. Then Bertram had his misdemeanor with a taxi driver, um, end up spending a month in prison. Um, along came Michael Schumacher, set the world alight really with his, his efforts in Spa. Um, then due to contractual agreements or disagreements, whatever you like to call them, um, he was gone and we swapped drivers with Roberto Moreno. Roberto, again, a very good friend of mine, did two races with us. And um, to be honest, the right thing for us to have done at that time would have been to have kept Roberto. But, you know, we were looking for money uh, as a team. Roberto was really good for us. He he was one of these drivers who, when it was right, he would be very, very good. And he would work to make it right uh, before he was very good. Um, he'd work very, very hard on the engineering side. And then Alex came along. That was totally the opposite. Alex was just flat tack uh, constantly. I mean, he, he probably did more damage in those three races for and, and parks. Luckily, it was the end of the season. 
than, than any other driver we had in the car. But um, I think the best goes to, to Australia. Australia, uh, in Adelaide that time, there was some big curbs, um, and Alex was just a curb user. And, you know, every day was a new exper experiment or a new experience. The car would come back in different levels of destruction, I suppose you might call it. Um, and we, we ended up, you know, going from his, on the Friday, from his race car as such to using the spare car, to taking the spare car and swapping the spare chassis we had in a box for that. And then after Saturday, I think it was after Saturday qualifying, we had to take that one that we had committed as, as finished out of the box again, start injecting all the glue around the nose supports and the front suspension pickups and, and rebuild it as a car for race day. So he, he used up all our bits and pieces in, the, in those three races. But on the way there, he was wringing its neck, you know, trying as hard as he could. And it was obviously that the race in, in Adelaide was a wet race. And uh, there's crashes all over the place. But we came around, I think, at the, at whenever the race was stopped, we were actually running fourth and fifth. I think on the, you know, in, in real effect, we finished seventh and eighth or something. But we were actually running fourth and fifth. And um, just one more lap under a green flag would have put us fourth and fifth, which would have been a great result for our team. So I remember whenever they were talking about restarting the race, um, I got both of them together and threatened them both with violence if they, um, they took each other off. If there was a, a lot of the race, you know, just whatever way you get going, you stay that way. You just don't bother uh, trying to race each other, you know. I don't care which way it is, but if one of you two of you take each other off, you'll meet the deal with, and that'll be worse than any accident you've ever had in a Formula 1 car. So, um, but the race never got restarted again, so. And obviously, you know, we, we enjoyed working with him, but it wasn't to be. Um, the next time I worked with him was in 2001 in, um, in America. I worked for Reynard for a year, um, trying to sort of develop the IndyCar a little bit more. And um, Alex was there with Moon Down Racing. And actually, interestingly, by that time, I think I think he had he'd lost that, you know, that real hunger and that real fight. And he got himself to a point where he, again, was trying to make, make things too good. You know, he was working too constantly on getting the car right all the time, as opposed to the Alex I knew from uh, 1991. And... Um, yeah, I was there at Lassett's Ring whenever he had his accident, and I actually sort of had to go and do an analysis of the car, of the accident for the police. So it wasn't a pleasant sight. And um, again, you know, I saw him a couple of years, yeah, three years ago, I suppose it was. Um, I had a good chat. He was well, you know, all that sort of stuff. But uh, accidents do happen, and I suppose, you know, um, it highlights it because he was a motor racing driver. But accidents do happen to all of us, and we just got to be careful about these sort of situations. They, they can happen so quickly. Um, he's suffering the consequences now, right, right now, and I really wish him all the best because he's a, a nice guy, good friend, good racing driver, um, somebody who inspired thousands, if not tens of thousands of people around the world, that you can do something even after these type of, uh, type of accidents. Yeah, and certainly we all wish him well. We know he's a fighter, so uh, yeah, let's hope uh, let's hope things go in the the right direction. If people want to get a bit more of a feel for Alex and Ardi, there's a great uh, podcast that F1 recently put out on their Beyond the Grid podcast, which is basically two hours of Alex talking about his career and, in fact, some of what he says chimes with what you said about him being a bit sort of overdriving a bit too much and just always trying to get the lap time out uh, early on. So he's uh, he's always a fascinating guy, uh, Zanardi, to listen to, and hopefully. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, he will uh, He will pull through. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This comes from Paul Madden, a general question about drivers. 
A simple question, but a very complicated answer, I suspect. The question is, what makes a driver fast? Specifically, what can a slower driver do to improve? Also asked, who was the last champion to win without the fastest car, which I guess is a side issue. But this, this question, what makes a driver fast? That's That's a really fascinating topic which i imagine you've got quite a lot to say on yeah i mean it's a, it's a tricky thing to answer because obviously the team and all that sort of stuff and the environment come into it as well but a, a set of equal circumstances where the the team and where a driver is with a team is uh, taken out as, as a given um i think the thing about a driver that's fast is a driver that's got capacity left over uh when he's driving the car at you know 99 percent you need the capacity left over to analyse what's really going on. Um, and I don't mean you need to know what the oil pressure is or you know, the, whether there was 10 people in the grandstand or none. Um, you just need to analyse what the car feels like. And it's been neglected for many, many years, I think, the, the mental fitness of a, an F1 driver needs to have. And I think Michael Schumacher was one of the guys that brought that to Formula 1. Before that, I suppose, you know, Jackie Stewart was one of the guys that had a lot of capacity left when he was driving the car. But you can't just put all your 100% effort into turning the steering wheel and, and you know, every lap becomes a, you know, a white-knuckle lap as such, a blind lap. You have to have capacity left over to analyse everything. And then you can take those little bits and add them to the performance. You can get them better. Constantly you can get them better. And, you know, as I say, 99%, drive at 99%, really and truthfully analyse why those things are happening in the car. Why is the understeer happening? Can you feel why it's happening? Is it because whenever I put the steering lock on, it starts to happen, or does it just break into understeer mid-corner? There's lots of reasons for everything, and the more the more that you can bring back to the team, the better you can make the car. And then whenever it comes, push comes to shove, then find the other 1%. And I think that's the thing that a real driver has, is that mental capacity to analyse everything. Whereas, you know, when we talk about slower drivers, I have to say, you know, there's very few slower drivers there's just not quite as good a drivers, I suppose you might call it. And they haven't got that capacity left over. Everything they're doing is taking in the environment around them and just keeping the car on the track, basically. Uh, and every lap's a new experience. Every corner's a new experience. And they're still going quick. There's probably sections of a track where you classify a slower driver. He's probably faster than a fast driver, but he's just not consistent in doing it. And he doesn't know he's quick there. The thing is, you know, recognize where you're fast, recognize where you've got more potential, identify it and try and fix it. And that's the sort of thing that I think separates the drivers. You know, Lewis Hamilton, I think, is a very good example of somebody that picks up track grip very, very well. You know, whenever the track's a little bit damp um, or it's, it, it's, it might be raining, it might not be raining. I'm not saying he's, he's the most fantastic driver in the wet, but I'm just saying in changing conditions and in changing tyres, he seems to be able to pick up that extra grip level at certain parts of the track and use it to the best of his ability um, and there's not many drivers can do that I haven't seen it from from a lot of them I mean Max Verstappen is obviously very good Charles Leclerc Sebastian Bell lots of very very good drivers but to me Lewis sits out ex exceptionally at that he can just pick up that extra grip level and that's the same as being a good driver you need to know how fast how hard you can push and what where the grip level is and how to get it into the tyres and uh, to me that's what makes a good driver and and uh, and not quite so good a driver. Yeah, and this, uh, this question that was tacked on about the last time a driver won the championship without having the best car, I guess you probably... I mean, best car's an interesting question, though, isn't it? Because, for example, one that springs to mind is Alonso in 2005, because the McLaren was quicker over the season. But I remember Pat Simmons saying, well, 
the pace of the car is one thing. You can't sometimes pace can come at the expense of reliability, and obviously there was unreliability there. So, yeah, best car is an interesting uh, interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, I would have said it was Alonso in two thousand five. Um, it was at the time of the tire war, so it was a, it was a bit different. You know, there was advantages with the Bridgestone against the the Pirelli and some circuits and vice versa. Um, but the way he drove the car, I thought was very good. You know, we've seen a few bits and pieces lately about this, the way he turned the car into the corner with a huge amount of steering steering lock and sort of tried to get the front tires past the slip angle so the car would understeer. So he knew that he would have understeer, but he knew that if he did that less, that understeer would disappear. So he was sort of unbalancing the car, especially at the start of a tire stint, to basically balance the car, knowing that he had another tool in his toolbox when the uh, the rear tire started to give up or started to get more grip or whatever, you know. He could alter the balance of the car with the speed of his input in the steering wheel. And that, you know, that, that I think shows he's, um, he was above the car a little bit, I think. And I don't think the car was the fastest car. You know, we need to go back through all the data to see, really. But I would have picked that one as the latest uh, episode of a, a driver doing better than the car, probably. Yeah, and Alonso is a fascinating case study as a, a driver, in fact, because he is somebody who's able to, he has that capacity, he's able to adapt to a wide range of car conditions. Uh, and, he, and he's actually, he's a strange driver, because I don't really think of him as a, he's not kind of a that, a that technically correct classical driver, is he? He's able to adapt in a way that other drivers can't, and he relies on that sublime feel and the almost superhuman speed of reaction in order to make everything work and the, the result is spectacularly good but he's like sometimes you see in other sports people who aren't technically correct but they're so strong on hand-eye coordination the way they approach it the capacity they've got that they're just quite brilliant and they almost almost improvise because Alonso is a reactive driver and normally the reactive drivers tend to be the less consistent ones but Alonso is a, a testament to the fact you can make that work if you're that good. Yeah I mean it goes back to the question from Paul Madden about what makes a fast driver you know, Alonso, I think he's, he's a fast driver, and as you say, he's always, he's always driving the car. He's always reactive to the situation. Um, that, that, to me, is a different fast driver. Um, that's not a, to me, that's not a, a sort of driver that's trying to get the best out of everything he has around him and then using it. If you, I think if you take back to the Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna days, Ayrton was somebody who was just, would just go out and, and wring the car's neck, drive the wheels off it. Alan Prost would work on it quite consistently and get the best out of the car. And come race day, he had a better car than Ayrton Senna. They still, you know, were, were tit for tat with each other. But at the end of the day, Prost drove a good car. Senna probably didn't drive quite as good a car um, whenever it come to long-distance races. And that's the same with Alonso. I think, you know, because of, as you say, his reactive bit, he's never driving quite as good a car because he has to keep doing that. So, you know, perhaps he had pure speed, he had the pure talent, or he has the pure speed, he has the pure talent, but maybe stepping back a little bit and trying to get the car better before he puts his application of his talent on top of it might be a better solution for a longer term, um, well, more world championships, basically. Yeah, it's certainly a case that's been made that sometimes... uh... Yeah, that, could, that can work against him. Uh, we'll move on to the next question. This is from Art Corona, who's a big fan of your uh, technical work. It says, the one thing that might level the playing field, in my opinion, would be to have all the teams qualify and race on one tyre compound. He says he's asked this numerous times from various places and yet to have a, a good answer. Does, is it because the, uh, the, the idea is naive and stupid or, 
or, or what? So th- this is an interesting question because the the idea with multiple different tire compounds is that variability is interesting. But would having a having a single tire compound potentially uh, level things up a little bit? Um, it's a very difficult question to answer. But if you come to the race, you'll get an answer. Well, it's the one you want or not? I don't know. Um, what I would say is that each car sort of uses a tire slightly differently. Um, now, let's say we start in the medium compound. Um, if your car's got a little bit of understeer in the medium compound and you put on softer tires, the car will have more understeer. So basically, if you've got a medium and a, a soft and a super soft or whatever they are these days, um, you will get more understeer as, as the tires get softer. You know you're going to qualify on the softest tire that's there at the weekend, so you sp- spend your time um, getting the car balance as good as you can on that softer tire because you know qualifying is the important thing. Um, but it still ends up as one tire because the tire that ends up on the grid 99% of the time, the car ends up on the grid, the cars end up on the grid on the same compound of tire. So it still ends up with that. And the tires change so dramatically from, you know, for the first five laps they do X and then after that they're a completely different beast anyway. Um, no matter whether it's a soft tire or the hard tire. So I'm not sure it would make a big difference because the guys would just get the cars balanced as best possible on that one tire. Um, and basically then you wouldn't have a change of compound. So you wouldn't have that deviation of balance. The problem is that really the the fact that the drivers, you know, the six or seven seconds a lap slower in the race than they are in in qualifying. And that's not just because of turning down the engine or driving slower. That's because you're just looking after the tire. You're not you're not pushing the tire. So I think it would be invisible if it was one one compound um, because they, the cars would get balanced on that tire. You'd still be six or seven seconds slower come the race um, and just looking after the tires, basically. So I, I genuinely believe that more compounds might be a better solution. Um, you know, they take they have been taken. I think they're still taking three, three tire compounds um, to each race. I don't think it would be a wrong thing to say that at some point in time you have to do, you know, at least 10 laps or a certain amount of laps on each of those compounds because it means that they you can't just focus the tire the, the car setup completely on one compound it might add a bit of uh, deviation to how a car responds during the race stint but again with this the fact that they drive so slow in the race relatively to qualifying i think it just it doesn't matter what tires on the car you just drive within it anyway yeah of course it'd probably be a different question if we had uh sort of Bridgestone style tyres that you could uh, you could really attack with uh, throughout. A question now from Chris Lambert. He says, who is the most underrated engineer you work with and why? So I guess this will be perhaps not one of the not one of the megastar technical names like yourself, one of the people that perhaps isn't taught. I mean, there's so many good engineers in F1. I imagine it's quite a long list. Uh, yeah, I probably would say the most underrated is myself. Um, no. <laughs> not on this podcast, Gary. You're, you're, you're the best on this podcast. Taking it in as a, as a global thing, because obviously lots of different levels of engineering, from, from being a race engineer, being design engineers, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think, uh, you know, whenever I look back at the, the times, the change of time between the late 80s when up to that point in time, and even the very early 90s, the, the the engineer in the pit lane was still the guy that had a bit of gut feel about what the car was doing, could respond to the driver's comments and whatever, and so their working relationship was very important. It's also the same time as you know the teams were going from being uh, three, five, ten design engineers using a drawing board 
to CAD systems where everybody was contributing towards a package of a car. Everybody could look at each other's drawings, you know, on the CAD system. They could build the car up, basically. So it became a, it was a very, very different, very big change of time between the late 80s and the mid-90s, I suppose you might call it. Um, so during that point in time, we'd started from the one with Jordan Grand Prix, and, you know, Andrew Green was one of the designers working with me, and Mark Smith was the other one. Both very good mechanical engineers. Um, both helped with the aerodynamics situation side of things with me. Mark did a lot of the composite work on the car, um, gearbox design. Uh, Andrew did a lot of suspension design, helped me with aerodynamics a bit, um, going to the wind tunnel or whatever. Um, so at that point in time, he said both of those guys were of fairly equal status, you know. And the thing about it is, it's, you know, we're all in life, we're all on a destination, we're going somewhere. And it's where you want to go to that takes you there that, that says you're you're good at doing something andrew's got his opportunity to be a technical director at the racing point he's doing a very good job of it he manages the guys well um he whenever we talk to him you know and i know him very well he talks sense he talks about how they work together as a group all that stuff so i think he does a very good job as a technical director mark had his opportunity with lesser teams as technical director but I would have classified Mark as a much better sort of chief designer, a hands-on guy that's designing stuff as opposed to managing stuff. And I think it proved that during the uh, during the years. But as I say, everybody has their destination they want to get to. And I, the other one I'd like to bring into that is um, Sam Michael. Um, you know, Sam came to us from Lotus uh, at Jordan. And, you know, he had big ambitions. He was very good. He was a very good analysis. He would look at stuff. He became, you know, a very good race engineer. Um, and one day he came to me in the, the drawing office. He was doing some R&D work with us, really, designing a, an auto, um, a self-balancing brake system. And, um, you know, he was doing a good job. And he sat down with me and he said, you know, I said, then where do you want to get to, Sam? You know, he said, well, I want your job. Um, I said, okay, well, we better get you into the, going around the workshop, going around the um, the factory or the, all the different disciplines, race engineering come R&D, you know, design, engineering, all that sort of stuff, get you a bit of a variety in life if you want my job because, you know, you don't need to be a specialist in anything, but you need to have a good understanding of most stuff. Um, and we did that, really. And as I say, I think Sam today, um, I'd classify as one of the top guys that being been able to look in, in detail and analyse something and see the reasons for it happening. But... I wouldn't have put him in a position as a technical director, which happened to him at Williams, and he suffered the consequences of that. So it depends on your own destination as to where you want to get to, you know. And I think I don't think I've ever had any underrated engineers. We always tried to give everybody the opportunity they, they had, but it's down to the individual, I think, to make sure that he is content in, in his environment and doing the best job that, that he can. And I think, you know, there's engineers out there now that are really content in, in how they go. Peter Bonington, for example, Lewis's um, race engineer, he worked for us as well. Similar sort of time, similar sort of guy. But he's happy with his life doing what he's doing. If you move him to being you know, something different, um, he won't be as good at it, probably. Um, and it, you know, it just won't, you won't get the results out of it. So get to where you want to be and get to where you are good at doing something and, and try and stick there and I think you benefit from that more than just keeping changing your position just because it's the right thing to do you know it's never the right thing to do get yourself in a niche that you like 
enjoy and are doing well and do it better. Moving on to a question from Graham Wishart now, who asks, what do you believe the biggest challenges will be for the teams operating under the COVID-19 protocols? Now, obviously, these are extensive set of protocols, social distancing, protective equipment, etc. We've had a few teams practicing these things. We've yet to see them uh, up close. But I guess in general, how difficult, what, what are going to be the big challenges of operating in this slightly unnatural way? The biggest challenge, I suppose, is going to be operating efficiently. Um, they've changed the rules a bit, so basically there's a bit more time to do stuff in that now. So you don't, you're not being forced to rush around like a lunatic um, trying to get stuff done as quickly as you can if you, if you have a small accident or a gearbox to change or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that's the, the, the environment has to accept that. I think not, not necessarily any individual team. The, the organization has to accept that these things might happen that little bit. There might be a, a you know, a delay in stuff happening because it can't make it happen so quickly. I think most teams would be having a practice run at how they're going to work together. But that's all fairly controlled. That'll be in the workshop or at the track if they did a, a filming day or something. They'll be um, making sure that they're all, you know, they're two metres apart or whatever it be. Um, and staying in the little bubble. Uh, but it's whenever something goes wrong, they need to sort of make sure they step back and um, realise that it's not actually, you know, you can't do that anymore. I think it was a, there's a, a few golfers and a few tennis players that have caught coronavirus since golfing and tennis has um, popped up again and started doing its thing. Um, so it's all that stuff whenever you think it's all gone away. I mean, we're all sitting here quite happy. There's no no drama. You know, when you meet a few people out in the street now and you, you tend to be closer to them than you should be just because it's a bit quieter now. You know, it's not not just that big thing. But for the teams, I think it's it's got to have to be disciplined very well because there's a race the next weekend and there's a race the next weekend and then there might be two weeks gap and a race the next weekend and so on. And it's what happens then whenever if people start do start getting sick. How do you sort of compartmentalise all that? So that the most important thing is from the beginning, I think you've got to have a system. And it's a bit like, um, as I've said a couple of times on my podcast, Jordan, we had a, we had a hydraulic problem um, one year where we're getting um, contamination in the hydraulic system. So we put in some different disciplines of how the system was built and assembled and all that sort of stuff and you know after two or three races or whatever it was a month um we weren't having the problem anymore so the guys that did the hydraulic system came to me and said oh can we drop those those uh, different disciplines now because we haven't got a problem anymore not realizing that it was because of those disciplines that we didn't have the problem anymore so no we have to keep them in place and it's the same with COVID-19 you know it's it's still here it's still around but this social distancing and the masks and all that sort of stuff, washing your hands, has helped to stabilise it a little bit. and It wouldn't take much to fire up again. So from the beginning, I think they've got to just go through the protocols properly, make sure to the best of their ability that they are um, doing the right thing at the right time, not for themselves necessarily, but for everybody else, because once it does get hold, it could very easily be that, you know, we don't have racing again. So from the beginning, you've got to be disciplined. Uh, Moving on, we've got a question actually that cites Andrew Green here, a question from Mark Martin, who says, Andrew Green recently singled out Eddie Irvine as being one of the most talented drivers he worked with. Do you agree with this assessment, and where does he rank for you? Yeah, Eddie was was very talented. Um, The problem, I would say, with Eddie was he was, you know, he was, he was Eddie. He was, you know, a bit gung-ho here and there. Um, Definitely talented. Him and Rubens, you know, backed against each other at that same point in time. You know, relatively, they were just, they'd just be able to do the same job, same lap time, but how they achieved it was massively different. 
Um, if you, I, I went in a rope car, you know, around many circuits with both of them. And the one thing about Rubens, he was like a fingertip driver, you know, just able to drive the car, let the car move. And at Portugal, you come down the long straight there, and there used to be turn one and turn two, which were flat out in an F1 car. And um, very, very quick. And Rubens would be able to go out there, come down the pit straight at night, switch the lights off in a rental car, and go around turn one and turn two with the lights switched off. And I remember him doing it to our, one of our guys at the Stewart, who almost, well, probably dead, um, get a bit too excited. But, uh, you know, Rubens was able to do that sort of stuff. Whereas Eddie, Eddie was always a bit more of the white knuckle driver. He'd be banging the curbs and every lap's a bit different from the other one, you know, that sort of stuff. But the end result on the stopwatch was they're both doing the same job, but achieving it massively different. Uh, I don't know if it was me, I would have preferred the Rubens style of driving because he was gentler with everything. He was doing what I was saying back there when we were talking about good driver. You know, he was analysing everything a lot better. Eddie was taking the maximum out of what he had underneath him. But he would know what was going on, but he wouldn't know it in detail. He'd know if the car was understeer or oversteering, but he wouldn't be able to pick up that finesse of, you know, this is why it starts understeering. It's the minute I touch the throttle or the minute I just get off the brake pedal or whatever. He didn't have that little bit of finesse. But as a driver doing the lap time in a car... Um, a bit like Ralph Schumacher, you know, just wrings its neck constantly. A good, fast driver, but I wouldn't have said you could take him to the next stage of the Lewis Hamilton or the Michael Schumacher, the real the real guys who really had a lot of finesse. Yeah, that's uh, well, there's not many drivers in, uh, in that sort of uh, uh, league. A uh, question from at Jordan192, which is a, a tribute Twitter account to the Jordan192, one of your... Uh, Probably one of your favourite cars. No, it's uh, certainly not one of your favourite engines, I know that. But he asks, how much work had been done on the Jordan 199 before you left the previous year? Are your fingerprints on it somewhere? And, of course, the the 199 won a few races, had a run at the championship. So, obviously, it was all your work, even though you'd left. Well, it was, of course. Uh, no, I mean, during 19, the 198, or during uh, 98, obviously, the, the 198 wasn't performing the way it should have done. And we um, took a lot of time, a lot of effort in trying to understand it. And that meant changing our sort of analysis of aerodynamics, how we went about analysing what was good and what was bad, and trying to get our, our, um, a handle on it so we didn't make mistakes again. Because nobody builds a bad car. Everybody thinks that the car is better than what they had before. But, you know, nobody, and I include Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, whoever in this, nobody knows 100% of what makes a car go fast. The, the good guys seem to know more than the, the, the less good guys. Um, but it's all a jigsaw puzzle. You need all the bets to go together. And if you get them all to go together well, you have a good car. Um, so with the 198, we didn't have that good car. We had something missing in that. It wasn't as if we'd done something wrong. Everything we did, we did better. The car had more downforce. It was more efficient. It was stiffer. It was lighter. Every, all that stuff. We had a problem with the engine, less power. But never mind that. You can analyze that and you can take that out of the equation. Um, so we worked hard to understand the 198 problems, and then we were going to you know, obviously apply them to the 197. So as Jordan Grand Prix, we, ma- we made the company better by having the problem in 98, which, which made, meant that 199 car would have a better direction of analysis. Um, when I left in August, a lot of the concept of the car was was well and truly underway, as it has to be. Um, the gearbox was more or less designed. The uprights were designed. Suspension geometries were underway. Aerodynamically, the car was in its research stages um, when Mike Gascoigne joined us. And I remember saying to Mike, 
um, Mike, you know, we're doing this gearbox and it's a bit different. Um, you better have a look at it. And Mike said to me, well, you know, I've never designed a gearbox in my life. So if you think it's right, go for it. Um, so it was just one of those sort of situations where obviously it got changed as the development stages went past after I left. But that's normal. That's what happens. I think I have a couple of fingerprints on there. Um, but it did change between my time and, and it hitting the track. So, you know, it's a, it's a team effort, every design of the car. It's not just me, but hopefully the, the disciplines I put in place from the learning of the 198 helped the 199 to be a better car. And uh, just one more additional late question that, that's come in from Killian O'Connell, who asks about DRS, saying what's the likelihood it'll be dropped following the 2022 rule changes and suggests will the race director enable it even if the racing improves? So I guess this is a question of will the new regulations perhaps make the DRS redundant? Um, I'm not sure what the new regulations are going to do for making two cars overtake each other that are basically travelling within half a second of each other as far as lap time is concerned. Um, you know, once you're behind, it's impossible. But I watched a um, Crash and Burn. I don't know if you watched Crash and Burn. Tommy, Tommy Burns thing last night. I watched it and uh, I had a little part in it. But at the end of the day, Tommy was doing a um, Formula 3 race, actually. British Championship he was, he was doing. And, and he was getting held up by Dave Scott and, uh, and the... Uh, Formula 3 in the Rolt and um, he needed to win the race to get the championship and he got past Dave Scott because Scott made a mistake on the last lap or for the last lap and basically he, he picked up two seconds and passed Mansilla on the last lap so he was, you know he's been held up by two seconds and he just could not get past there was a bit of abusive driving I must admit putting him on the grass a few times here and there but that's life so you know from my point of view no matter what regulations you've got Unless you've got a car that's faster than another car, you, you ain't going to get past. If they're almost the same performance, you will still lose performance by following another car. It might be a lesser performance loss, but it'll still be a performance loss. So you're still going to have to have that, and I call it a gimmick um, because I don't like the DRS. You're still going to have to have that gimmick to actually allow you to pull off that overtaking maneuver. When you've done that, you might be able to go away at half a second or a second a lap. But that that little bit of getting past somebody is still going to be very, very difficult. I hope they do away with DRS, but if they do, I'm afraid, I think you might see a bit less overtaking even, if that's if that's possible. Yeah, and of course the DRS very much in the 2022 regulations, but the hope is that it might be rendered irrelevant uh, beyond that. But uh, yeah, as you say, that's uh, that's quite a big ask. Uh, well, thanks very much, Gary. Uh, we've got through the uh, through the questions, and of course, we'll uh, we'll be back with a with a full on season preview uh, in next week's uh, in next week's edition. So, I guess until then, uh, if you, if you do have any questions uh, for Gary, please do feel free to uh, throw them at us. Either throw them at me at at Edstra F One or throw them at Gary Anderson on Twitter at Gary Anderson F One. Uh, always happy to uh, to try and enrich your understanding of the sport that's one of always been one of uh, gary's big things even gary when you were a technical director if you look back through old old auto sports and other magazines you're always cropping up explaining things so it's uh, always been a big passion of yours well i can only explain things as i understand them but i try my best because um you know it, it does look like it's black art but the reality of it is it, it is just the same as as everything else you know you have to do it well you have to dig deep you have to understand it and if the people out there who are basically what keeps the whole thing going, you know, the viewers and spectators, 
enthusiasts and even the people who who are not enthusiasts the more we can bring in to be enthusiastic about it by understanding a little bit more the better for the sport no, that's what it's all about, and that's uh, important for everyone in, uh, in F1 to remember that. But yeah, we'll be back with more Gary Insight next week in the season preview, so thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.